Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. I hope that you are all well. Well, I must make an announcement. Unfortunately, Reddit has gone on a strike, which means they have blacked out a lot of their stories. There is a protest going on for the next couple of days, maybe longer. I will put the link in the description if you would like to read up to figure out what's going on. And pretty much um, that kind of affects us narrators that get on here and narrate these stories for our audience. So please bear with me through the rest of the week as I do my best to find stories elsewhere until the Reddit issue is resolved. With that being said, I would like to give a very special shout out to our Patreon members. Tavia S., Victoria Dyer, Tina Mead, Nancy Wallace, Mana Ash, Interscare Wifey, Felicia Scott, Cindy Cleveland, House of Jen, and the rest will be listed here on the screen. Thank you all so much for being a part of the new membership. If you would like to become a part of the membership here on YouTube or over on Patreon, or if you like what you are hearing and would like to support me as a content creator, you can buy me a coffee and all of that information can be found in the description box below. Now, it is time to go back to ashes. For when we arise from the ashes, we are a bigger, brighter, stronger, and happier person in the morning. Sit back, relax, kick back, grab a snack, or tuck in and get warm, and prepare for this dose of vocal melatonin entitled, True Disturbing Medical Horror Stories. Right after this introduction, there will be an ad. I'll read the first story there will be an ad, and after that, there will be no more ads within this video. Disclaimer. Some of these stories will not be suitable for all. Listening discretion is advised. In 2007, nine-year-old Alyssa Helmingarn became sick and didn't seem to be getting any better. She had swollen glands and cold sores that wouldn't disappear. Because of the malaise that Alyssa displayed, her mother, Carol, suspected that she may have had mono. However, when she took her daughter to the doctor, she received some devastating news. Alyssa was admitted to a Denver hospital, where she was diagnosed with leukemia. That alone was tragic enough, but it wasn't the end for Carol and Alyssa. After a week treatment, Alyssa seemed to be doing better. She and her mother managed to walk around the hospital and watch a movie. But as the evening arrived, Alyssa began to feel worse. Soon after, she began to experience dire symptoms. Despite the best efforts, doctors couldn't help Alyssa and soon died. Alyssa wasn't killed by leukemia. The actual cause was... Clostridium difficile, a hospital-acquired infection that had grown more severe with each day. 
No one managed to find the infection before Alyssa died. It turned out that a doctor had noted Alyssa as anxious, so she was given Ativan, which could have covered up her symptoms. Another reason that nothing was done was the prohibitive cost to treat severe infections like C. diff. Antibiotics pumped directly into a large vein via IV cost $50,000, which makes many doctors leery to use, unless it's absolutely necessary. Alyssa did not die in vain, though. Since her death, there have been numerous reforms in treatment throughout hospitals in Colorado. Richard Smith, 79 years old, had kidney disease, which required him to receive dialysis. In 2010, Smith was undergoing dialysis when he started to experience shortness of breath. He was admitted to the ICU. The next day, he complained of a stomach ache. He was prescribed an antacid, which he received from his nurse onward. Only... It wasn't an antacid. Smith was given pancuronium, a paralytic and muscle relaxant that is used for intubation in small doses and for lethal injection in larger ones. After Smith was given the drug, he became unresponsive. The drug had put him into respiratory arrest. Apparently, the packaging for the antacid and for the paralytic looked similar, which was the cause of the mix-up. While doctors did manage to resuscitate Smith, he was brain-dead and remained in a vegetative state until his death one month later. According to Andrew Yaffa, the Smith family lawyer, the case was, quote, the worst case of medical neglect, end quote, he had ever seen. To have given Smith the wrong drug, the nurse would have had to fail to follow numerous protocols. She failed to look and read what medication he was taking, failed to scan to determine the right count for the medication, and failed to match the patient's ID with the scan medication. To add insult to injury, the hospital appeared to show no remorse, even allowing the nurse to remain on the same floor that Smith had died on. They did, however, remove pancuronium from all nurses stations in the hospital and only allow anesthesiologists to have access to the drug. Regina Turner endured many people's worst nightmare concerning surgery receiving the wrong operation. Her ordeal was already frightening enough. She had been admitted to the hospital for a left-sided craniotomy bypass, which was supposed to prevent Turner from having continued strokes, as she'd previously had a series of mini-strokes, which affected her ability to talk. After having the wrong surgery, her health deteriorated. Before she went into surgery, Turner was still in relatively good shape. She was mobile, cognizant, 
and able to care for herself. According to the lawsuit filed against the hospital, Turner's condition worsened. Quote, after the incorrect surgery, Turner requires around-the-clock care for her basic needs. She will also continue to suffer from emotional distress, anxiety, disfigurement, and depression. End quote. Rather than the left-side bypass, she had been given a right-side bypass, which caused considerable damage to her nervous system. Once the mistake was caught, the correct procedure was done, but Turner remained in poor health. The failure of anyone to catch the doctor's mistake meant that numerous protocols were overlooked. Generally, before an operation, doctors and nurses will have a time-out where they discuss in depth the details of the surgery and go over exactly what needs to be done. The surgeon also has to mark exactly where the surgery is to be performed. Apparently, this wasn't enough to keep them from operating on the wrong side. We can generally agree that technology has vastly improved our lives, but it can still make mistakes, as can the people using it. This was the case when a 16-year-old boy named Pablo Garcia was admitted to the hospital for colonoscopy to examine intestinal polyps. What should have been a completely routine procedure nearly became a lethal tragedy. Garcia had a rare genetic disorder called Nemo, deficiency syndrome, which causes recurrent infections and gastrointestinal issues. Because he was susceptible to infection, Garcia required frequent antibiotic treatments. While in the hospital, Garcia had been prescribed the drug Septra for his infections. It's fairly easy to determine how much of the drug to give to someone. It all depends on conversions based on weight and age, which can be easily calculated with computers using a program called Epic EHR. The program had been set to milligrams, which means that it would calculate how many milligrams of a drug should be given based on how many kilograms the patient weighed. However, the nurse treating Garcia reset the program and didn't catch that it had now been set to milligrams per kilogram. When she typed in his dose, 160 milligrams of Cetra, it multiplied it by Garcia's weight. The dose equaled 38 and a half pills, the largest dose ever recorded. Rather than question the machine, the nurse doled out the pills soon after Garcia had a grand mal seizure, nearly dying. Luckily, he managed to survive. The case of Pablo Garcia illustrates, quite clearly, how dangerous it is to depend too much on technology. In 1987, Andy Warhol required gallbladder surgery. Despite having a phobia of hospitals and doctors in general, 
he agreed to the surgery, which seemed to be successful. As usual for someone in a hospital, Warhol received fluids to remain hydrated. Unfortunately, he slipped into a coma and soon died. Why had Warhol died after a routine procedure? An inquiry found that, at the time of his death, Warhol was anemic. He had been before he was admitted, but doctors said he was in good enough condition for surgery. Afterward, though, it was discovered that Warhol had been receiving twice the amount of fluids he needed, which caused his body to drain itself of minerals, leading to his death. He had been unattended and internal pressure built up, causing heart failure. According to Warhol's private physician, Dr. Ditton S. Cox, the 58-year-old artist, hadn't been looked over by any physicians, and the nurses rarely, if ever, checked up on him. He was being pumped full of morphine, which, along with loss of nutrients due to excessive fluids, caused his body to fill up. During his autopsy, it was discovered that Warhol's lungs and trachea had completely filled with fluid. The condition that Warhol died from could have been easily treated if someone on the staff would have simply paid attention. In high school, I was a cheerleader but I went to a school that actually took cheerleading very seriously. We did hours of conditioning, independent tumbling classes, practice for hours after school, all that good stuff. I have a weird heart, so physicals were more in-depth for me. My aunt worked at the clinic in our town, so she's the one who took me to my appointment. She's a goofy, loud, outspoken nurse, so all the doctors are very comfortable around her. After my physical was finished, the doctor stayed in our room and was just chatting with both of us. I had seen this doctor before, but he was being extra nice this time. I assume because he was more comfortable because my aunt was in the room and he knew her well. He asked if my parents allowed me to date yet. I was 15 and they did so. I laughed and said yes they did. He then asked me if I wanted to go on a date with him. I thought he was joking because obviously I was a child and this was a doctor who looked to be in his 30s. He was not. He legitimately wanted to take me on a date and my aunt thought I would be excited because he was a doctor. I just felt so grossed out. He had to have known my age. I was there for a high school sports physical. I was brace-faced and barely getting boobs. This guy had just had his hands all over me for the physical exam and wasn't just being nice, but was flirting. I'm married with a toddler and a newborn baby now, and just find it even more revolting now that I have kids.
I randomly remembered this when I was cleaning out some stuff and found a wristband I had from the kid's hospital I went to heaps as a kid. I was born with cystic fibrosis, so spent a lot of time in hospital as a kid. I'm from Sydney, Australia. This would have been in 1998. When mom came to visit me when I was about eight, she took me to the cafe in the wheelchair with my drip pole. And it was pretty crowded, so she just put me aside of the cafe and I happily waited while she ordered me a milkshake and she got a coffee. While she was paying, this doctor, he had an ID and all and stethoscope, bent down to my height and said, Oh, hey, are you for sale? What are you doing sitting there? I explained I'm with my mom and pointed to her as she was paying. I instantly got a creepy vibe from him. I awkwardly smiled at mom. I started coughing heaps as the antibiotics at the time I was on were pretty heavy, and the cystic fibrosis. You cough a lot. It's not contagious. The doctor kept looking at me and said, Wow, you were just so beautiful and so cute, and patted me on the leg. Looking back at this, now I'm 30 years old, I'm thinking... What. The. Fuck. Mom paid and came and got me. She could tell I was looking uncomfortable and asked me what the doctor said. She said next time she won't leave me near the magazines and will take me around with her to the food counter, etc. Safe to say it kind of scares me now if that doctor is still around. I hope he isn't up to anything sus or disgusting and using authority for his medical degree. So, please, creepy doctor from my childhood, let's not ever meet again. I had a dentist at this place that was very affordable for us. He was also my mom's dentist. The first appointment was normal. Everything went well, other than finding out how fucked up my teeth are. My husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, was with me the entire procedure at my request. I don't trust people. Second appointment was about a year later, after I fully paid off the first. I had to have another tooth removed among many other things. So I'm sitting in the chair and my dentist walks in and asks where I've been in a playful manner. He said, quote, I wanted to help you, but you ran away, end quote. I laughed and explained, and he said he's glad I'm back. He then walked over to me and began stroking my hair, and he says, quote, You're very beautiful. You remind me of my little sister. End quote. And he keeps petting me. He was way too close for comfort, and I'm not good with physical contact like that. My mind was going a mile a minute. I had that horrible sick feeling in my gut. That kind of feeling, like screaming that you're in some kind of danger. 
He was explaining the procedures that we had to do while still stroking my hair and staring at me. But in my head, I kept rationalizing it. Maybe it's because I'm like his sister? Maybe he doesn't get to see her? But why doesn't he get to see her? Maybe she's not in the U.S.? But this still isn't appropriate to do with your patient. I should say something. I should leave. But what if I'm reading into this too much? No, I've got that sick feeling. It it can't be. But what if I am? He'll probably stop soon. My husband will be here soon. A nurse will come. It'll be fine. It felt like forever, but he stopped pretty quickly and went on to prepare for the tooth removal. He felt it necessary to tell me a few more times how beautiful I am and that it's a shame I messed my teeth up while being so young. I was 25 at the time, almost 27 now. I shakily asked for my husband to be brought in now. I had to ask more than once. They nearly started until I said it more firmly. The dentist never answered me. He just started and walked away to get my husband. They removed the tooth. Dennis messed up by slipping and cutting my gum, which made the healing come out kind of weird. I got the aftercare papers and never went back there again. I told my husband about it, and he thought it was weird as fuck, too, assuring me that I'm not overreacting. I thought about reporting the guy, but my anxiety got the better of me. Plus, he didn't really do anything wrong, maybe? I really just wanted to get the hell away from there and find a new dentist. I haven't gone to the dentist for a while. A lot of big life-changing things have happened, and I just haven't had the time. I told my mom about the dentist, too, and she just laughed and said he's a weird guy that because he's foreign, he does things differently, despite never having done anything like that to her. She's always dismissed me like that, though, so whatever. I'm just glad to never return to that place ever again. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. 
Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What I'll be reading next is medical horror stories, which made doctors want to quit on the spot. Here we go. I was not prepared for the day a patient exploded in surgery and splattered all over the entire operating team. Basically, a watermelon-sized tumor was being removed from the patient. It turned out the tumor was more of a giant cyst. The surgeon didn't open up the belly wide enough to facilitate the thing. So imagine someone trying to dig out a giant water balloon from an 8-inch incision with their hands. The pressure of the tumor caused it to erupt out and upwards, spraying its contents on everyone and everything in the room. On the positive side, this made the removal of the thing a lot easier. I do recall a lot of people screaming when it happened, though. The patient came out fine. But... I myself almost turned in my recognition. I was a junior doctor working in the neurosurgery department back in 2008. One of the senior registrars I worked with told me his most unfortunate moment in the operating room. In order to have a patient's head stabilized for surgery, He used a frame that had a setup of three spikes that held the head in place. Due to the angle he needed to approach from, this required the patient to face down. As he was placing the head of the anesthetized patient onto the frame, the unimaginable happened. The head slipped and his eye landed onto the spike, perforating the eyeball. Panicking and thinking that his career was over now, he then started poking at the eyeball, trying to work out what was what until the anesthesist told him to stop. They then called the ophthalmologist who came to tidy up what was now a completely ruined eye. After the surgery, he went to explain to the patient what had happened. Understandably fearing the worst, anger, distress, and tears, he received the response of, that's okay, I was blind in that eye anyway, from the patient. Luckiest guy ever. I was in charge of the ICU unit the other day and we had a pretty messy situation. We had a patient who had some big abdominal trauma. He had gone to the OR and he was too sick for us to be able to close his abdomen, so we left it open. We had a sheet of plastic protecting his intestines and we placed a vacuum sponge dressing on top of it called a wound vac. 
The patient's nurse called me into the room to look at the abdomen because she thought she saw pieces of the bowel seeping out of the bag and getting sucked into the wound back. I agreed and thought the bowel looked pretty dusky as well, so we called the doctor to come and look at it. He advised that we take the wound back off, tuck the bowel back into the bag it had escaped from, and put a new wound back on it. It all just sounded like it was going to be a disaster, but whatever. So, we took off the wound back. We could see that the patient's bowels had become very swollen from the fluids, trauma, etc. Just as we were lifting it, the unexpected happened. The patient's bowels all slipped out. The bag was dislodged significantly. When we tried tucking the bowels in one side, they would spill out the other. The guy was in his bed just disemboweling and we simply could not get everything back in. Luckily, the anesthesia we had given the patient kept him very nicely sedated, but it was messy. We really had to step back and say, well, shoot, how do we get this guy's guts back into him? We ended up having to call in six other people to help tuck things back in. We finally got him back to the OR for them to get everything back into its proper place. I'm not quite a surgeon, but I received some medical training. I was bisecting someone's leg, and I hadn't realized that the person had a metal rod through their femur. I'm not a construction worker, so I don't know why I did what I did, but surgeons must press on. So, I did something that no one in the OR could have ever predicted. They all just stared at me with their jaws on the floor. I proceeded to cut through the bone with a metal saw. Sparks were flying everywhere, and before long, my blade broke. Luckily, I was standing off to the side instead of directly behind the blade as it flew backward and hit the wall. The clothes the person had been wearing were lying underneath the body and caught a spark. My, oh my god, what have I done? Moment only lasted a second. I was able to douse the person with the water hose before a large fire could start. Fortunately, the person I was operating on was deceased, or I would have been in big trouble. I had just gotten my first job out of college at the local hospital. My first week went by with the usual stitches and broken bones. My second week around midnight, this very obese woman came in complaining of chest pains. So, we rushed her back, grabbed her vitals, and did an EKG and blood work. Everything was normal, or so it seemed. The problem was, she was still complaining of chest pain. So, my supervisor and I asked the lady if we could do a head-to-toe checkup. Now, this woman had a rather pungent smell to her when she came in. 
but I had learned to not think of it as the people in the area weren't known for their cleanliness. We were looking at her chest. I noticed that her left breast was reddened and swollen. I told her that I was going to lift up her breast to rule out any skin infections. As I lifted up her breast, a wave of noxious stench engulfed the air around me. As I kept lifting her breast, I could see what looked like a mass of rotting tissue going into her chest. My supervisor ran out of the exam room and proceeded to vomit in the nearest trash can. I looked at the lady and asked her why she didn't come in earlier, as it looked like a massive skin infection was raging under her left breast. She replied that she did not have insurance and that she didn't think it was a huge deal. I called in some nurses and the doctor to assist cleaning the wound. As we're cleaning, one nurse noticed a bit of fur and bone. That's when we made the most horrifying discovery of my career. We found out it's a small animal of sorts. They collected the sample and sent it to pathology. We removed it and noticed that it had rotted into her chest so much that her ribs could be seen. In the end, it was the lady's missing kitten. She spent four months in the hospital for massive sepsis and other related issues. So, parents brought in this four or five year old girl because she would have these episodes and they didn't feel safe, but they wouldn't explain what she would do during them. They just told me that she will do it again in a minute. So I'm getting her vitals and she's really sweet and interactive. And then all of a sudden, her head, neck, upper extremity goes limp. I shake her and see she's still breathing but not saying anything. Then she lifts her head a little and all of a sudden has this deep manly voice, almost raspy and definitely sounded like it was from an older man and says to me, Don't hurt her. Don't hurt her. Take that knife away. All of a sudden, she snaps out of it and is talking in her normal voice again with normal tone and says, I'm sorry, the scary man had a knife to your throat and wanted to kill you and put your blood on the wall, but I told him no. She gets admitted for months and has every treatment under the sun and finally the family wants her to have an exorcism. They fly a priest in from Texas and invite every person who's been in contact with her to be present to expel the demons. The priest has the girl lay on a sheet on the floor. The lights are dim, and he says some prayers in Latin. This goes on for a while, and then all of a sudden, she starts shaking her whole body on the floor, speaking in that deep voice again, and in tongues. This lasts for a minute or two, and then the priest says, Thank you all for coming. That concludes this ceremony. Then... In her chart, she had zero episodes after that and was discharged a few days later.
I'm not a doctor, but I'm a nurse. I work with geriatric patients, and there was this incident about three years ago. Before I explain, let me say that I don't believe in ghosts. Anyway, this one time I was working the night shift, and I was super sleepy, so I decided to skip lunch because I wasn't hungry and go to my car and sleep for 30 minutes. I got inside my car, covered myself with my sweater, set the timer on my phone, and immediately conked out. I'm dreaming, but in my dream, I'm still awake, just sitting there. Someone taps on my car window, and I see that it's one of my patients. We'll call her D. Surprised, I ask D what the hell she's doing outside, and she tells me she is looking for her daughter. I tell her to go back inside and that we will call her daughter in the morning. My patient becomes angry and starts banging on my window. I kind of freak out and try to reach for the door handle to get out and calm her down, but I quickly realize I can't move. Let me add that I frequently experience sleep paralysis, so even though I am dreaming, I realize what is happening. I fight it and try squirming my body in an attempt to wake myself up. I finally manage to wake up and my heart is racing and my forehead is a bit sweaty. I sit there for about a minute, realize it was all a dream, and roll the window down to cool myself off. My break is over and I clock back in and see that my supervisor and two other nurses and huddled in front of a room. I am still by the station clocking in when they see me and call me over. I walk over thinking maybe something was wrong with the ventilator or the patient fell, but my supervisor tells me D died while I was on my lunch break. Since most of our patients are DNR, I was not paged. It took a couple of seconds for the message to register, and I freaked out internally. I got goosebumps but didn't mention anything to my supervisor about the dream. I don't believe in ghosts or anything like that, and I most likely had that dream because she was the last patient I interacted with before my break. So she was still on my mind, and I was mentally going over my patient's charts in my head. As a tech in psych years ago, there was a seven-year-old kid sent to the floor because the mom didn't know what to do with him. Sadly common thing to happen, even if the kids don't have psychiatric issues. Anyway, the mom was shaking and crying and they had to take the kid into another room. She was genuinely afraid of her own son. She had suspected something was wrong when she kept finding mutilated animals in the backyard, but never heard or saw coyotes or anything around. The neighbor's smaller pets started disappearing. The boy had an obsession with knives, hiding them around the house, denying anything when the mom confronted him. Then, when the two started getting into arguments, he would really get violent and hit her 
push her down and kick her, threatened to kill her. On multiple occasions, she woke up in the middle of the night with him standing beside her bed, staring her in the face. She put extra locks on her bedroom door to feel safe while she slept. The last straw was when she lifted up the mattress and found 50-plus knives of all shapes and sizes under there. So, she brought him to us. I remember talking to him, treating him like he was just any other kid that came through. He seemed remarkably normal, until you spoke directly to him. He had this way of looking right through you, or maybe like he didn't see you at all while you were speaking. He would respond like a robot, like he was just saying words because that's what we wanted to hear. And he would always put on this creepy looking dead smile, like all mouth and no eye involvement in the smile. Especially when he could get away with something, like taking another kid's markers and they couldn't figure it out. Still gives me chills laying here thinking about it. I had to get up and close my bedroom door. I believe I met a seven-year-old psychopath. Verifying death is always sad, but my friend tells the funniest story about how creepy his first verification of death was. This is not meant to disrespect anyone. Black humor is a huge part of doctors' coping strategies. He was on a night shift a few weeks into his first job as a qualified doctor and got a call from a ward to say a lady had passed away. An expected death, hence he hadn't been called about her before. And could he come verify and do the paperwork? It's a busy shift with lots of sick people to see first, so he takes several hours to get there. He goes up and they tell him she's in room 8. The door to room 8 is slightly ajar and the room is dark. Now, she was in a side room, but most patients... There were in shared rooms of six beds, so you get into the habit of not turning lights on. In his nervous haste to make sure it didn't look like he was nervous, he slipped into the room armed only with his little pen torch. The window was slightly open and, he swears this, the blind rattled against the seal as he crept towards the bed. The tiny circle of light from his torch picked out the rumpled, white hospital blanket. Only a very slim rise showing where she lay, as she was a tiny old lady, just skin and bone. Finally, the light plays over her face, and he has to bite back a little scream, nearly dropping the torch. For whatever reason, her poise in death is one of a horrified and horrifying snarl, lips drawn back to bare, likely false, teeth, the whites of her eyes showing in a fixed blind stare, and both hands up close to her face curled into claws, slightly overlong nails shining grimly in the mirage of torchlight, 
Now, to verify a death, the doctor had to listen for heart and breath sounds for two minutes while failing for a pulse, check for pupil reactions, and check for no response to pain. He flicked the torch dutifully across her glaring eyes, forcing himself to shuffle close enough to touch, first to check for response to pain, and then to settle shaking fingers on her throat. So close to those ferociously gritting teeth to feel for a pulse, to get a stethoscope under the collar of her gown under the blankets. He has to lean in even closer, almost nose to nose with her now, unable to draw his gaze away from hers. And he has to stand like that for two minutes, the seconds crawling away as he stares into that screaming face. He says there's no way he would have heard heart or breath sounds even if she had been alive. All he could hear was his own racing heart in his ears and on a loop in his head. Please don't let her move. Please don't let her move. Oh dear God, please don't let her move. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. In 2001, USA Today reported one of the more well-known cases of medical malpractice happened to Saturday Night Alive alumni, Dana Carvey. Roughly two months after the double bypass operation that was supposed to preserve his life, Mr. Carvey received the news that the surgeon had bypassed one of the wrong arteries. The surgeon who performed the surgery stated that it was an honest mistake that occurred due to the unusual poisoning of Mr. Carvey's artery in his heart. Dana Carvey felt quite differently, and subsequently he filed a 7.5 million lawsuit against the surgeon and the hospital. It would be quite easy for most readers to dismiss the aforementioned case as an anomaly. Before disregarding its merits, consider the following two cases. A 67-year-old woman, who was given the pseudonym of Joan Morris, was admitted to a teaching hospital to have a cerebral angiography performed. After the procedure was completed, Miss Morris was returned to a hospital room on a different floor than her original one. Instead of being discharged as planned the next morning, she was whisked away to have an open-heart procedure performed. After having been upon the operating table for over an hour, a doctor from a different department called and asked what they were doing with his patient. Once the mistake was realized, the procedure was canceled, and Miss Morris was returned to her room in stable condition. However, the potential consequences of the extra surgery performed included 
significantly increased risks of heart attack, stroke, internal bleeding, and infections. In a similar manner, surgeons at the Rhode Island Hospital performed surgery on the wrong side of a patient's head for the third time in one calendar year. This particular incident occurred in November of 2007. An 82-year-old patient required the operation to stem the flow of bleeding from his brain to her skull. The surgeon immediately started the procedure off incorrectly by drilling a hole on the wrong side of the patient's skull. This action occurred despite the fact that a CAT scan performed only moments before indicated that the bleeding was happening on the left side of the brain. The mistake was caught early on and the resident surgeon closed the initial hole and proceeded to the correct side of the patient's head. Although the patient survived the surgery in fair condition, Two other similar incidents had occurred within the last year, one of which had resulted in the death of an 86-year-old man. Although these mistakes are horrific enough, there are instances where a patient is unable to even be seen by a doctor before succumbing to their illnesses. One of the most well-known cases is that of Esmond Green. Miss Green visited the emergency room of Kings County Hospital, located in Brooklyn, New York. On that day in June of 2008, Miss Green waited almost 24 hours to be attended to by a physician. Eventually, she collapsed on the floor of the emergency room. Other patients in the emergency room reported that employees of the hospital watched the patient lashing about on the floor, but they did nothing to intervene or alleviate the patient's distress. Subsequently, Miss Green died on the floor of the emergency room. It would seem to be a horrific storyline from a medical drama on television. In the script, a patient awakens during surgery, but is unable to communicate to the surgeons or nurses that he or she is awake and can feel every ounce of pain during the surgery. This situation actually occurred in Sherman Sizemore, a 73-year-old Baptist minister from West Virginia. The surgery was originally supposed to explore the cause of the man's continual abdominal pain. During the surgery, Mr. Sizemore experienced a rare condition known as anesthetic awareness. Essentially, he was able to feel all of the pain, discomfort, and pressure during the surgery. The anesthesiologists present during the surgery did not give Mr. Sizemore the general anesthetic that would have rendered him unconscious until 16 minutes after the surgery began. Family members contend that the trauma of the experience led to the minister to kill himself two weeks after the surgery.
Donald Church, 49, was lucky enough to have had the anesthesia correctly administered during his June 2000 surgery at Washington Medical Center in 2000. The surgery was intended to have removed a tumor located in his abdomen. The tumor was removed. In its stead was left another souvenir, a 13-inch long metal retractor. Doctors at the hospital admitted to accidentally leaving the retractor inside of Mr. Church. It was not the first time that such an accident had occurred in the hospital. Four other documented incidents had happened at that hospital between the years of 1997 and 2000. The retractor was removed shortly after its discovery, and Mr. Church did not suffer any long-term health effects from the mistake. A settlement was reached between the two parties for the amount of $97,000. In the aforementioned case, Mr. Church was fortunate enough to avoid any long-term medical consequences for the surgeon's mistakes. However... The same cannot be said for a separate case involving Mr. Willie King. In 1995, the 52-year-old man, Mr. King, was admitted to University Community Hospital in Tampa, Florida, to have his leg amputated. During the procedure, the wrong leg was amputated. By the time the surgeons realized their mistake, it was too late to reverse the damage caused and the leg had to be removed. The attending surgeon was fined $10,000 and his medical license was revoked for six months. The hospital paid Mr. King $900,000 and the surgeon personally paid him another $250,000. The hospital admitted that a chain of errors cultivated in the wrong leg being prepped for the surgery. In another case involving similar mistakes, Mr. Benjamin Hotman suffered the loss of his one healthy testicle. The 47-year-old patient was a veteran of the Air Force who had been complaining of pain and shrinkage in his left testicle. Due to concerns about the risk of cancer, the decision was made for surgeons at the West Los Angeles VA Medical Center to remove the diseased testicle. During the procedure, the healthy right testicle was removed by accident. Later, it was revealed that a chain of errors, from errors on the patient consent form to failure on the part of the medical staff to properly mark the correct surgical site, resulting in the accident. Mr. Halton and his wife, consequently, filed a $200,000 lawsuit against the hospital and the surgeons involved. Even when a patient has had their medical procedures performed correctly and has received adequate medical care, 
medical malpractice can still occur. A prime example of this danger is the case of a 36-year-old man from Arizona who received a traumatic brain injury. His devoted wife kept him on life support when the doctors told her his case was hopeless, and he eventually recovered consciousness and was able to speak again. Every week on her days off, she brought him home with her. On one of the days she was to bring him home, she received a call from her husband's assisted living facility that he was vomiting. Shortly upon arriving home, her husband died in her arms. At his autopsy, a number of foreign objects were found in his stomach and his bowels, from unopened ketchup packets to plastic bags to paper towels. These items were determined to be one of the contributing causes to his death, and in a subsequent lawsuit, the jury returned an $11 million verdict against the assisted living facility. To many celebrities undergoing frequent cosmetic surgeries to keep them looking fresh is nothing more than a joke. After all, if they have that much money to throw around needlessly, then why should we care? In the case of Beverly Hills surgeon Jack Starts, celebrity plastic surgery took a dark turn. Recently, his horrifying practice has come back to light due to the HBO film Behind the Candelabra, where he is portrayed as an eccentric surgeon who will do anything for his client. In reality, though, he was an unethical monster. In 1979, Liberance, the world-renowned showman, watched himself on The Tonight Show and was horrified by what he saw. He felt that he looked old and decided to get a facelift. He went to ear, nose, and throat specialist Jack Starts, who agreed to perform the procedure. The result? Liberance's face was so tight that he couldn't fully shut his eyelids, even when he was sleeping. Despite this, Liberance wanted his partner, Scott Thorson, to receive plastic surgery to resemble a younger version of himself. Starts agreed to do this too. In the process, Starts put Thorson on a Hollywood diet, which was little more than a highly addictive cocktail made of drugs like pharmaceutical cocaine, quaaludes, and amphetamines, which left Thorson dependent on them. The reason Starts agreed to do these questionable procedures was the fact that he was experiencing financial problems related to his own alcoholism and drug use. He soon found a gold mine in silicone injections. He performed them constantly without any regard for his patients because he needed the money. The results were scary. Elaine Young, a celebrity realtor, was a high-profile victim of his practice. Starting in 1977, Young received monthly silicone injections from Starts. At first, the results seemed to defy reality, so much so that Young recommended Dr. Starts to all of her friends and clients. 
Within three years, though, something started to go wrong. The silicone in her face began to shift and move, severely deforming it. She tried to contact Dr. Starks, but he didn't return her calls. She learned that over 100 lawsuits had been filed against him. From 1965 to 1979, Starts had injected 2,000 people with silicone, many of whom were experiencing the same effects as Young. Facing mounting legal issues, possible jail time, and severe substance abuse, Starts put a gun in his mouth and shot himself in 1985. And that, dear listeners, is the end of these true, horrifying medical horror stories. I am so sorry it's not longer, but that is what I could find until Reddit decides to come off the strike and come back online. So, if you are sleeping, I hope Slumberland is treating you kindly. If you're awake, I hope you've enjoyed this collection. Until next time, I'll read to you soon. Have yourself a good morning, a good afternoon, or... Good night.